Hello, everybody. Um, my hair is a mess. Anyway, um, welcome to White Line Fever. I wash mine. <laughs> welcome to White Line Fever Live, and welcome. I guess when this goes on, if you're watching on YouTube, it's going to be this uh, a new series called Mar um, Milestones, which is uh, just picking uh, um, things from rugby league history that perhaps are subject to some conjecture, which is uh, why we're here today, because uh, we had um, Tom Mather father of Barry John, which I didn't know when, when we interviewed him. Uh, and he talked about, he's put out a book called Rugby League is Born. And in it, he argues that um, the story we're all told about it being a social movement and uh, it being, uh, um, you know, empowering the working class was just spin uh, from a guy called, I think, Joe Platt um, uh, that he came up with when um, basically uh, the clubs uh, left uh, for their own self-interest. They left Rugby Union for their own self-interest. The, the clubs uh, in Lancashire uh, were being caught for open professionalism and were basically on the outer. And the clubs, um, I guess more tellingly in regard to the situation we find ourselves in now, the clubs in Yorkshire um, actually um, just didn't want to play Southern clubs because they didn't draw crowds. Um, they didn't, no pints, no... Uh, no, no beers. Uh, so they wanted to play each other so they could uh, make more money. And the, the, the whole um, Northern Union um, uh, you know, um, a legend or myth is exactly that. It's a myth. Um, and everyone said when we uh, did this piece, have you asked Tony Collins what he thinks? And um, I, um, well, Tony Collins has come to us and, and, and wanted to uh, give his perspective on the situation. Uh, welcome uh, for your second appearance on the program, Tony. How are you? Yeah, not bad, Steve. Thanks for get, getting me back on. Um, yeah, and it's a fascinating discussion. And yeah, somebody said to me, um, have you heard what Tom said on Steve's, uh, uh, Steve's podcast? I said, no, because I'd, uh, I'd, I'd missed it for some reason. Uh, but, but yeah, I mean, I've known Tom for, I think Tom and I first met in the board, old boardroom of the Rugby Football League at Chapel Town Road in Leeds. Uh, because that was the only place you could actually go to to do any research on the history of the game, because all the minute books and all the archives were kept in Morris Lindsay's office, and he could only consult them when Morris wasn't in the office, uh, which I think by the time the early 90s, he wasn't there very often anyway. So, so yeah, so that's so, so yeah, so me and Tom go back a long way, yeah. Um, so, um, is there, is there merit in what, what he's got to say in his new book? Um, well, I know it, it's, um, it, it's a discussion we've been having for a long time. Going back to a book he mentioned, actually, in, in the podcast he did with him, um, The Rugby League Myth. Um, I think the problem with the view is that it's very narrow and that if you just look at what the Yorkshire clubs do in the last couple of years before the split, it's very easy to interpret that as simply a manoeuvre because they, they don't like the idea of promotion and relegation from the top division of Yorkshire rugby, which is called the Yorkshire Senior Competition. But I think if you dig, dig a little bit deeper, uh, you realise that one of the reasons why they didn't like promotion and relegation was because um, the Rugby Football Union was suspending uh, clubs that they suspected of paying players in Yorkshire. Uh, and they weren't allowed to play matches and they weren't allowed to replay them. So what, what essentially happened, this happened in Lancashire as well, was that they were placed at the bottom of the league automatically. So, yeah, the RFU said... We think you've been paying your players um, and therefore we'll find you guilty and you're automatically placed at the bottom of the league. So you basically were suspended. And so that, that's what was going on. But it leaves aside what was going on for the previous 20 years where the RFU had introduced amateurism in 1886. 
against all the trends in uh, in in rugby and football, soccer, um, as an attempt to control the game and uh, keep the game the um, uh, the property of those who've been to private school and universities. And quite, you know, rugby was a massive game in Yorkshire and Lancashire, bigger than soccer in Yorkshire, bigger than soccer in a lot of places in Lancashire. And so the clubs were, so the clubs fought back against that. And one of the ways in which they did that, going back to 1888, was to propose that players be paid, bro- paid broken time payments the time they took off work. So, so that's the background to it. And I think that's essentially what, um, that idea that the, the split was a myth uh, misses out. There's a whole backstory of the RFU attempting to impose amateurism in the most dictatorial way on the clubs in Yorkshire and Lancashire. And the clubs wouldn't stand for it. Uh, they felt that it was both unfair to their players and also it meant that they were losing money because they were commercial operations, as Tom points out. Uh, and that's what led to the tensions that led to the split in 1895. Tom uh, also said that broken time was actually quite common in sport at the time. It wasn't such a revolutionary idea and that it was actually um, in operation. Um, is, that, is that true? Well, I, th- I think that's one of the problems with, uh, and one of the things that Tom's missed out is the fact that, yeah, before 1886 when the RFU introduced amateurism, broken time payments were very common. And you can see it in club minute books. Uh, that they were playing broken time. In 1886, the RFU decided that no player should receive any money for playing the game. And any player who did receive money would be suspended or expelled, as would the club. Mm. So broken time was common, but the RFU stamped it out. Mm. Um, that anyone who was discovered or suspected of being paid broken time was suspended, clubs and players. Um, so broken time was being paid uh under the counter, if you like, in a covert way, secretly, but it wasn't allowed. And anybody who was caught paying it would be suspended. And that meant that they put not only the future of the player at risk, because you were, you know, you were basically uh, removed from the game. And that meant that some players went over to soccer. John Sutcliffe, who was an England international, was suspended and thought, well, bugger this, I'm going off to play football where I can get paid openly. Uh, and it also meant that clubs lost a massive amount of revenue because you were barred from playing other teams. Uh, uh, and so because they were big institutions by that time, you know, they, um, they were commercial operations, they had a massive role in the community, um, they, they wouldn't stand for that. So broken time, the call to reinstitute broken time was both a, a way of protecting themselves, but also a way of saying, well, look, if... Uh, you know, a, a guy who's been to Eton and Oxford and works as a solicitor in the city can uh, uh, take time off. Why, why should someone who works down a pit or on the docks in Yorkshire uh, be take time off work on the same basis? What about this idea that instead of, as we understand, the northern clubs um, breaking away because you know they because of the reasons we've just discussed and because the players couldn't afford time off work, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that actually they wanted to be isolated. They wanted to only play each other because, as we know now, we're seeing with Toulouse and Catalans, they don't bring any away fans. No, um, no, they don't sell any pies or pints. Um, and that this actual, this is actually such an ingrained attitude that it actually helped give birth to rugby league. Well, there's... That's true of all sports, and that's true of the birth in, in soccer of the football league, because the problem was, as Tom outlined, that um, without a league, basically playing friendlies 
competitions. And obviously the problem with the cup competitions is, is that you can get knocked out in the first round and you lose your lucrative matches. The idea behind the Football League was precisely to counter that, whereby you would have a home game every other week where you would be guaranteed of playing uh, quality opposition, opposition that was at the same level as you. Uh, and that would mean that the game would be more attractive because it was better teams and the clubs themselves would be able to sustain themselves because they had a, a regular source of income. And so that was common in football with the Football League, in cricket with the county championship, uh, and, you know, you go across to the States, baseball as well. That's basically the idea of the league came from baseball. So the clubs in Yorkshire and Lancashire felt exactly the same way. We want to, you know, um, there's lots of examples where the top clubs, uh, Bradford, Leeds, uh, Huddersfield, were knocked out of the Yorkshire Cup in the first round because they played each other or something like that, or there was an upset, and they didn't have any more lucrative games for the rest of the season. Now, clearly, if you've just invested in Headingley or Fartown in Huddersfield or Bradford Park Avenue ground, um, that's not very good. So just as in all sports, the top clubs decided they wanted to create a league which would improve the quality of play, but also improve their commercial prospects. So, so yeah, absolutely, that was part of it, just like it was in every other sport. I guess, though, the, the, there was the regional sort of uh, aspect of the rugby league, wasn't there, where, I mean, there was... Some people think that the, the, there was an expectation that the southern clubs would eventually adopt, you know, join the Northern Union and that the Northern Union would end up being, you know, that they'd end up running the rugby in the, in the whole country. You know, that didn't happen. The question is, I guess, the, the conversation with Tom uh, gave rise to with me is, did they actually want that to happen? Did the Northern Union clubs want the revolution to be national or were they actually... Would that have just made, affected their gates adversely? Would they, would they prefer it to, to stay in the north? And that obviously speaks to the situation we have at the moment. Um, the, not initially, well, one of the problems they had with playing the southern teams is that the southern teams stopped playing them gradually over a period of time because they kept getting beaten by the northern teams. And this was actually it kind of went to the heart of why the RFU imposed amateurism because they didn't like the idea that teams in the north, which were usually predominantly comprised of working class players, could beat teams in the South. Mm -hmm. uh, another reason why the Northern clubs didn't like playing the Southern clubs was because the Southern clubs demanded huge amounts of money as guarantees to come and play them. Um, and so, you know, there's the famous example in the 1890s where Bradford simply stopped playing teams in the South because they just, they just want too much money to come North and play. Mm -hmm. So th that was part of it. Uh, in terms of did they, did they want to have a, uh, be a national competition or did they want to be a, a local competition? Well, yeah, they th there's two aspects to this. Yeah, they thought they could be a national competition. I mean, that was why the Challenge Cup was started. 1897, they started the Challenge Cup because they wanted to create a, a rugby version of the FA Cup. Now, obviously, because of the opposition of the RFU and the way that the RFU uh, uh, managed to manoeuvre to stop other clubs outside of the north, uh, and especially in Wales, coming uh, coming over to rugby league, um, that never worked out. And I think that if you if you read what um, what some of the participants say, some of the officials in the Northern Union say in the 1890s after the split, is that what they hope and expect will happen is that the Northern Union will become the equivalent of the football league in soccer. 
So in soccer, you had the Football Association, which was the governing body for the entire game. And then the Football League was a governing body for the professional game. But it was like a, uh, it, it was answerable ultimately to the Football Association. And so a number of teams, a number of officials in the north of England felt that that was, um, that would probably happen or that's what should happen, that the RFU would still be the governing body for the entirety of rugby, but the Northern Union would become the, the equivalent of the Football League and govern the professional game. Now, the problem with that is that the RFU were absolutely determined not to compromise whatsoever. And so there was never any, any chance that, they, that they, they could expand or come to some kind of agreement with the RFU because the RFU, RFU basically said, we're not prepared to compromise. We don't care what happens, whether that means the weakening of the England team, the weakening of the game as a whole, but we're not prepared to compromise. And that's, again, that had an impact on the Northern Union. A lot of people would say, well, these two guys have got the same sort of source material and yet they've come up with two different narratives uh, for, for the same set of events. I just wonder, like, how much of it comes down to um, you, your your perception of the game today? So, you know, obviously you see a nobility in rugby league that perhaps Tom no longer sees. Um, and, and does that inform the way you interpret the same information? Well, here's the interesting thing, because when I first started doing this, doing the research on this and I've got to doff my cap to Robert Gate and Trevor Delaney who, who paved the way for this in the 1980s two great historians who never get the credit for the work they did um, when I started doing the work in the early eight, uh, 1990s I my initial uh, thought was that what I would discover is that this was really about commercial forces and that it was an aspect of the way that the entertainment industry developed in the 19th century in Britain and that was one of the things that interested me, why I wanted to look into it. Uh, and in a sense, the fact I was a fan was neither here nor there. But what I discovered as I went into the sources and went back and read the newspapers, both in the north and in the south of England, was that uh, at the core of this, it was a complex issue. Commercialism played a very important role. Regionalism to some extent, but commercialism you know, drove a lot of the things. But what the overarching aspect of it was the overarching feature of this dispute was the position of working class players and what's amazing is that you can find huge amounts of stuff written by both people in the RFU and people in the Northern Union about the importance of class and the, essentially the leaders of the rugby football union did not want working class players to dominate the game in the way that they felt working class players had come to dominate soccer when it became professionalized after 1885. Um, and the officials in the North were driven by the commercial needs of their club, but they also realized that one of the things that was uh, restricting that commercialism was the fact that fundamentally rugby union was unfair, that it wouldn't allow players to compete on the same level playing field because you know working class players who had to take time off work couldn't afford to take time off work to compete on the same level as solicitors, bankers, accountants, you know, professional classes. So so class was actually at the root of everything. That's what we that's what determined the policy of the RFU. 
and what restricted the realm of action of the Northern Union. Now, um, I, I don't actually believe in the nobility of rugby league. I'm as cynical about the um, the, uh, the the actions of those who run the game uh, 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 as anybody else. And as, as you said, that's always been a feature of the game. And that's it's always been a feature of all all sport, all professional sport. And it's it's kind of because competition on the field meets competition uh, commercially. But there is a crucial difference between rugby league and uh, and other sports that the um, the declaration that founded the Northern Union was essentially about creating a level playing field for all players. Mm. It meant that all players could compete on an equal footing. So on that fundamental issue, then, yeah, rugby league did have a higher sense of purpose than other sports. But that's not to deny everything else that went into the mix, petty jealousy of officials, the commercial needs of particular clubs, the short-sightedness of club officials. I mean, so to give you an example, the fact they introduced broken time rather than open professionalism was a kind of way of creating a cartel because they realised if they allowed open professionalism, as had happened in soccer, a number of clubs would immediately go bankrupt and the game wouldn't be able to sustain it. So broken time was almost a kind of compromise to stop open professionalism and in a way to stop players getting the benefit of their, of their, of their talents. It didn't last because players went on strike. And as usual, the clubs found a way to circumvent this by making under-the-counter payments. So it's, this is the thing. It's not one thing or the other. The formation of the game was based on a principle of fair play for all. But that also covered over a number of other motivations of which we're all familiar with today. And you can see in every aspect of the game, whether it's the way the uh, NRL clubs uh, take their lead from Channel 9 or, or Fox Sports, or the way in which the, um, the Super League clubs conspired to uh, get rid of Toronto Wolfpack and you know um, hate it because Toulouse won't bring enough people to, uh, uh, you know, to, to pay for pints and pies at the, uh, in the club bars, as you said. Um, before we go, um, it was very interesting. There was a, a, a colorized footage from, I think, 1902, which recently um, surfaced on social media. And, um, it, um, and obviously, it's 15-man uh, rugby with, with uh, line-outs and breakaways. And, and a lot of people, particularly Australians, say, well, it's not rugby league. And um, it, it, I mean, we know this argument, but actually to see it kind of uh, played out with, with people watching this footage for the first time, Hull playing Wigan in 902, it, it actually made, made me revisit the question myself in my own head that you, how can you actually argue that rugby league is a, a different sport? It's a breakaway competition that then just evolved in a different way. You know what I mean? Because what makes it rugby league is that what we're watching, it's not run by the rugby union. You know, so the de defining um, the defining aspect of rugby league is really and not a play the ball, or I mean, we don't see drop goals are worth two if you kick them from your own side halfway now. Um, interchange rules just seem to change every year. Ball stealings just changed again. It seems that it's, it's rugby league because it's run by rugby league administrators. And, and that actually, James Maloney said uh, everyone else is just an accessory aside from the players. Um, he's wrong, actually, because if it wasn't for administrators, James Maloney would be playing rugby union. I mean, it, the, the administrators are the defining aspect of rugby league. 
Yeah, well, I mean, that's true in all sports. And I, but, and I think also with oval ball sports, um, you know, American football, rugby league, rugby union, whatever, um, then because they're bo- also bodily contact sports, the, the rules change all the time. I mean, you look at rugby union, it looks nothing like rugby union 20 years ago, let alone rugby league 125 years ago. So, uh, and, you know, American football as well. You can go back and look at footage of American football in, you know, 1908, and it looks like rugby league. Mm-hmm. In one sense, so so that's tr- so in one sense you're right. I think that the game, you know, the game, it's constantly evolving because it's it's difficult to come up with a set series of rules that you can keep the same because coaches are always trying to get around it, players develop, and you know players get bigger and all the rest of it. In a sense, soccer is the exception that it has a fairly stable set of rules that don't really change uh, that much over a long period of time. Whereas any game played with an oval ball uh, really does change. In terms of was rugby league rugby league in on the thirtieth um, of August, eighteen ninety five, the day after the split? Well, well, yes and no. Um, no, because the rules hadn't changed, but also the but the th- I think the thing to remember is that one of the other things that was going on in the north of England at the same time as the broken time debate before the split, going back to the well late eighteen eighties, was a debate on how rugby should be played. And in the north of England, there was a very different conception. The, the southern teams, the RFU supporters, thought it was basically about set pieces and kicking goals. In the north of England, and to some extent South Wales, but in the north of England, the idea was that the game was about scoring tries and running with the ball, tackling hard. And that led to a whole series of debates about how the game should change. So you get in 1891, there's already a discussion about we should move to 13 aside. We should, we should reduce the number of scrums. So it takes a while for that to happen. It takes a while for the play of the ball to be introduced uh, in 1906, same year that 13 aside is introduced. But the thing to bear in mind is that once the split had taken place, a massive debate started about how the game should be played. And they had experimental matches in September 1895, uh, uh, 13 aside, they uh, immediately changed one of the rules about the scrum to make the scrum uh, got less boring. Um, they got rid of the line out in 1897. They reduced the value of goals, so tries were the most important way of scoring. So, sure, the game that you see in 1902 in those Mitchell and Kenyon films with the Wigan Hall thing, it's not the same as what we've got now. But there's an evolutionary path that you can trace. In just the same way, you can trace the evolutionary path from... American football, because there was no forward pass in American football at that point. So mm. was it really American football? Yeah. Uh, but I think that's the point about sports. The, our view of how sports evolve is, unfortunately, it's distorted because soccer is so huge mm. and it's relatively unchanging. But in all oval ball uh, games, the game is constantly changing. Now, obviously, as rugby league fans, you know, some changes for better, some changes are for worse. And there's Clearly, there's loads of debates going on now about the game, uh, about how the game should be played. But, you know, it's no different from, you know, 1966 when limited tackle football was brought in. Four tackles and moved to six. Um, It's always been the case with the game. And I think if you look at other sports, it's always been the case with them too. It was someone actually um, posted a picture of a Model T Ford when the guy said that, that isn't rugby league. He said, "Well, this isn't a car either, you know." Um, but but I guess that's where and we'll, we'll I guess we'll go in a minute because I've kept you too long. But the two things together, what makes it rugby league? Is it the rules and the motivation for the breakaway? When you take these two things together, 
um, your understanding of that uh, affects the way you you are to me the way you consume the game today. So, you know, if you think that the the clubs just uh, broke away because they wanted more games against local clubs or they were, break, they were blatantly breaking the rules and they were in trouble. And then, and, then, and then they still played for another 10 years or 11 years or 12 years with, with, with 15 players. Then you've got your understanding of what rugby league is, is uh, very different to, to someone who believes in, you know, the, the, that it was a social movement and, the, and, and that it was empowering the working class uh, and, and in which case you kind of um, you do think it became rugby league the very next day because it wasn't rugby union. So, so to me, I'm, most people don't think about things to that great extent. I'm sure someone who's watching Friday Night Football on Channel Nine doesn't care. But um, to me, the two things sort of go together. Is that it, you know it, as to what I'm watching now, and you know what what actually is it? You know, but um, I'm, I'm going to. I think. Sorry. So, yeah. No. I was, I was going to say. And I, I think this is. And I think this is a. You've hit the nail on the head of something here. That, in terms of um, what the way I see my role as a historian, and I think other historians would, would do that, that what you feel about the game today is irrelevant to how you should view the past. Because as a historian, your duty is essentially to put yourself in the shoes of those people at the time you're studying. Mm. How did they feel about what was going on and why did things happen at that time in the way that they did? Now, uh, I mean, I watch rugby league, whatever, you know, whatever. I've been watching it since, you know, since you know, 1969 or whatever. Um, do I think the game is the best it's been now? Uh, it's ever been? No. Um, but then, you know, that's always been the case that people think that. But for me, that's irrelevant to what the way I view um, history, just as it, you know, it's irrelevant. I don't know if you were studying military history you know your view of war today has got nothing to do with how you would view you know your analysis in the first world war or, or something like that so that i think that's a bit i think that's a, a, so i think that's the key thing as a historian about the way yeah. to look at stuff i was just saying you'd hope there, there's i know there used to be when i was a kid people who loved war and you know what i mean and they bought all those mag periodicals that come out but you'd hope they were a bit more enlightened now that people aren't enthusiastic about war um, the way some people still are enthusiastic about rugby league. So well, you know, a lot of military historians are still very enthusiastic about war. And <laughs> I think that's one, of, and in, in a sense, that's one of the problems with that type of that type of history. But I think, as for us, it's very important to re kind of remove yourself from current debates because otherwise, you just end up interpreting the history uh, in term in the way that people view the present, and that's not the job of the historian. The job is to create as recreate as far as possible. Um, the uh, the conditions and the thoughts and the perceptions and the actions of people in the past who didn't know what was going to happen. That's mm -hmm. the key thing. To them, it's the past to us, but to them, it was the present. Mm -hmm. And they were acting completely blind and unaware of anything that would happen. And I think that's a, you know, that, that's, um, and, and so to look at the past through the eyes of the present is always, is, uh, can lead you astray. As fans, we want sometimes want reassurance that the thing we're spending our money and time on is worth it, is worth our devotion, is worth our, um, you know, enthusiasm. Well, and, and, uh, yeah, and I think that's one of the problems with the rugby league, though, because we, we do, I mean, I, you know, there is, it sets itself a high bar. It sets itself a high bar because of its past. And so the things, you know, that, that you and I and everybody else who's watching this are familiar with, but, 
you know, it was formed on the basis of some, you know, fair play, uh, whether you accept that or not. Um, it's always had a better record in integrating uh, black players. Uh, it stood up against Vichy France. All these um, aspects of rugby league culture are very important to us. And when that seems to have been betrayed or dismissed, it makes it much harder to stay in love with the game. And I think that's why you get so many people who think, oh, no, I don't want anything to do with the game. I used to love it. I used to go for years and years and years. And now look what they've done to it. And it's because the the um, uh, rugby league, in a sense, put itself on a moral pedestal. When it falls off that, it's so much harder to bear. Mm. And in a sense, I think you have to have that um, complex understanding that, yeah, it does... It, in a sense, it has set itself higher than other sports because of the circumstances of its birth. But on the other hand, a lot of the birthmarks that it came into the world with, such as uh, you know, rampant cheating, a desire to get around the rules, a, uh, a, a massive dose of self-interest, have always been part of the game as well. And like everything else in life, it's very complex and contradictory and you just have to... Uh, you just got to live with that. It's uh, that's just it's rugby league. <laughs> that's fantastic. That'll be if I pull out one of those little shorts. I'll pull out the last two minutes. Um, <laughs> um, uh, that, mate, I really appreciate your time, and I really appreciate your contact. Yeah, me too. Yeah, thanks for getting and, me on. Yeah. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to put um, I, I'm going to create a general link for for your books and a general link for Tom's books, and I'll put them in the show notes. Um, it'll take me a couple of days to do that. But um, um, so, so whether you're listening, uh, please look at the show notes, look at your phone. There's stuff written underneath the program. Uh, look there. And if you're on YouTube, obviously, just uh, look in the show notes because the alternative is looking at me. Um, thank you very, very, very much, Tony. That was awesome. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you.